Genesis 37 tonight. Genesis 37, we continue our studies together in the life of Joseph that we began last time. It is a little bit warm in here. I think Pastor Larson's going to get the fan going for us. Genesis 37, I want you to look down with me, if you would, at verse number 23 for sake of time. Now, we're going to back up and look at this passage from really verses 12 to the end of the chapter, but I want to draw your attention to verse 23 in particular. And it came to pass when Joseph was coming to his brethren that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. And they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Look at verse number 30, 32. Uh, verse 31, excuse me. And they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colors, and they brought it to their father, and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. And he knew it, and said, It is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. Jacob rent his clothes, and put, on, and put sackcloth upon his loins, and mourned for his son, Many days, and all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, and he said, For I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. This, thus his father wept for him. Verse 36 And the Midianites sold him, that is Joseph, sold him into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of, Pharaoh, of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. Lord, I pray that you would give us insight from your word tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would empty me of myself, that you would cleanse me from any sin that would hinder your word accomplishing its work tonight. And Lord, that I would be filled with the power and the working of the Holy Spirit to be able to deliver the truth of your word tonight, that your people, the sheep of your pasture, can be fed thereby and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll thank you for all that you accomplish. In His precious and holy name, I do ask this and sanctify this time in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One writer put how this all is coming together this way. I'll share his words with you because they were quite vivid to me when I read them. He had a way of uh, taking the words and painting an image with them. You know, you know, Maybe you've known someone who could do that. They could take words and by the time they're done giving those words, you can visualize a canvas before you and there's, a, there's an image in your mind. Well, listen to this writer's words of this, uh, this story. The threads of Joseph's rejection by his brothers were woven fine. The sinful human strands of his father's favoritism and his own naive self-centeredness plus the divine threads of the two Joseph-exalting dreams combined to create an ever-tightening noose for the gallows of Joseph's rejection. The noose was already around the young man's neck, and as we all know from the storyline, the trap door would soon spring, sending young Joseph down to a living death of slavery in Egypt. We know, too, that God's plan was in full motion, though no human could see it. Israel's human savior, the future vice-regent of Egypt, was being put in place 
Joseph's story would show how God's hidden providence works through men's evil for their ultimate good. Dark as the story is, it shines with hope and optimism. And we will duly note the glimmers of providence. Uh, not, not a few commentators that I consorted with uh, after I studied the passage noted what I had already observed in the providential hand of God moving behind the scenes of all the moving pieces here in the fallout of how Joseph wound up in Egypt. Now, let's back up because this move down to Egypt was prophesied long before Joseph ever came on the stage of the story of Genesis. If we go back to the earlier chapters in the life of Abraham, we read that God gave Abraham certain promises. And within those promises, he unfolded a plan that his descendants would remain in Egypt for a period of 400 years. And we know that as history unfolds, it was 430, down to the exact number that God prophesied they would be in Egypt. The only problem is, how are they going to get there? God's providential hand has to work in all of this. And and through the allowance of this evil that his brothers are going to commit against him, which we talked about the seed being planted in their heart, the seed of hatred, or the seed of favoritism uh, that Jacob had that planted this, this, uh, this plant that then grew into the root of hatred in his brother's hearts against Joseph, which then bore fruit of envy. And now that envy is manifesting itself with their actions that we read in verses 12 through 36. Thomas Mann imagined it like this. And with one accord, their hearts beat with rapid rhythm like drums so that a hollow concerted drumming noise arose in the breathless stillness. Vile democracy reigned as each added his bit to the homicidal plan. When young Joseph arrived, the murder was set. The crowning wickedness was the plan to cast his murdered body into a cistern unburied, the supreme dishonor. What would bring them to this place? Well, it's the sin that they've allowed in their own heart that has brought them to this. Now, I do want to say this. As we look at this story, there really are two themes that we need to note. There's there's almost a dual dual presentation that Moses is making to us. On the one hand, do we not see and observe the faithfulness of Joseph? Can we not see his integrity shine? Can we not see his devotion to his father? Can Can we see a faithful servant of God just doing what he's supposed to do for God? We see that in the life of Joseph. But, duly and at the same time, do we not also see the, the utter wickedness that has been allowed to harbor in the heart of his brothers? And I would say, you know, Dad might have some things to deal with too because of his rebuke over Joseph's dreams and his lack of faith in that he sees this coat dipped in blood and as he's prone to do, Oh, yes, Jacob is very prone to jump to conclusions. Remember him when he was uh, coming to meet Esau? His conclusion in his mind, he'd already made up, Esau's going to kill me, and Esau didn't kill him. He embraced him and said, no, all that's in the past. See, Jacob jumps to another faulty conclusion here 
and I think, you know, dad, dear old dad might have some things to work through. Sometimes God's servants suffer due to the sins of the evil that others commit. You know, I preached some years ago on a Wednesday night about some reasons for suffering, and I won't give you all of them here again tonight to rehash all of that. We don't have time. Uh, if you have questions, we can talk afterward. You can see, but you know, suffering doesn't always come just because of our own sin. Anyone that thinks that just needs to spend some time with the Book of Job, right? We understand not all suffering is due to personal sin. There are other reasons why God allows suffering in a person's life. Why would God allow Joseph to go through this? What did Joseph do to deserve any of this? Besides maybe open his mouth prematurely about what God had been doing in his life and being faithful to his father, just doing what dad told him to do. Joseph is of no fault that I can find. Now, I've read the commentaries and they go back and forth. And I'll tell you, the good commentaries will make no qualms about seeing a type of Jesus Christ in Joseph. And, and I take that position. Okay, I see Jesus in Joseph every time I study his life. I can't get away from seeing Christ in Joseph. I don't know how anyone could try to explain it away. Well, it's never mentioned in the New Testament. It's never said in the Scriptures that Joseph is a type. I understand. I understand that. But the picture is clearly there. And a type is an imprint to me. So when I look at the life of Joseph, I, I see a definite imprint of Christ. Is, is he sinless? No, Joseph is not sinless. Uh, there are some areas where Joseph surely is not perfect. You're hard-pressed to find them, by the way. He's a man of, of repute. He's a man of integrity. Uh, but he's human, just like anybody else. He's not divine like Jesus was, 100% God. He's 100% man. And Joseph, though, he, he shines in so many ways, does he not? And yet Joseph is going to be allowed to suffer at the hands of his brothers. And it's all because of the wickedness and the sin that's in their heart. Now one of the themes that this leads us through, this is one of the, one of the first places in Scripture, the earliest places here in the book of Genesis that sets the tone for the rest of the Scriptures that Jesus will elaborate on. In that blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before them. He goes on to say, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice. I want you to notice some things tonight as we lead up to this. We look at the story of how this all fell out. Let me remind you, Genesis 37 is beginning the new Toledoth, or the new generational study, the generational narrative surrounding Joseph. And the break is seen at the first part of chapter 37. Chapter 36, we saw the lineage of Esau. Chapter 35, Jacob was at Bethel. Chapter 34, we had the incident with Dinah. Chapter 32, Jacob was leaving Haran. So all of these have moved now. Jacob is down south, back where he grew up. He's returned to his roots. He's back in Hebron. He's no longer in Shechem. He's no longer in Bethel. He has settled down in Hebron. Now, we traveled through this area, and I'll tell you, it, it was very eye-opening for me. It brought things into 3D as I stood there and considered the Bible narratives that I'd studied and, and read. And I was able to put things together a little better and, and to see the distances weren't as far as I made them out to be. 
when we're here in Colorado in these big open skies, you know, we can see for miles and miles and miles. Uh, everything's a lot closer over there. It's a it's a lot tighter of a land. Now, this is still a long way to travel on foot or on animal, no matter how you cut it. So if Jacob is in Hebron, then the brothers somehow wind up back north in Shechem. Hebron is down south in Israel. It's on the... the the very precipice of the Negev Desert. So think very southern Israel. I want to get the geography in your mind because it will help you understand the journey that Joseph is about to make when Jacob desires him to go check on his brethren. Somehow, some way, the brothers, the ten, right? Because Benjamin, uh, he's not with them as far as I can tell. Uh, Benjamin's still at home with dad. He's too young for this. He's, he's going to stay closer to dad, I'm sure. Joseph is is sent on a mission. But the brothers, how did they get up there? Why did they go up there? It's not spelled out as far as I can tell. I know that they were keeping sheep, but I think it was Dr. Morris and some other commentators pointed out, surely there was plenty of pasturage down where they were. Why in the world were they heading back up to Shechem? Now, who remembers what happened at Shechem? Shechem is demolished. Okay, There's nothing left of Shechem. There's nothing but ruins up there after Simeon and Levi and the brothers had their way with Shechem. What are they doing back there? I don't know. I don't have chapter and verse for this. Can I submit to you? I think they were up to no good. I can't prove it, and I'm not going to die on this hill kind of battle. But I think that they were up there, and Jacob was a little concerned, and he had every right to be concerned because maybe they did. Maybe. Okay, note that's a big maybe. Please understand, this is a big maybe. I'm giving you my glorified, uh, my glorified understanding of this. So yes, I might be reading between the lines a little bit. I'm trying to piece together the story and how they got up there. I'm not sure they even asked for permission to go. Maybe Dad just realized, hey, I don't know where they are. Hey, Joseph, you know, they must have gone up north up here. What are they doing in Shechem? Maybe they had some things going on with the Shechemites up there that... Uh, you know, after they slaughtered the whole town, maybe there were some people up there that they were really up to no good. Now they get up to Shechem, and that's where they're supposed to be, right? You ever you ever run into that? Maybe you're at an amusement park or something, and you get split up from somebody, and you know, you say we're going to rendezvous here, or I'll be over here, and you, so somebody is set to go look for somebody, and they're not where they're supposed to be. Well, I don't know where they're at. That's how Joseph feels when he gets up there. Notice here as we. As we look at this story, first off, I want you to see Jacob's desire. His desire is to know what's happening with his sons and his flocks. They're they're not in Hebron. They're nowhere close by. So then Jacob is going to desire Joseph to go check on him. Verse number 12, And his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. They just went. Do you see that? It doesn't say they asked. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I suppose that they just went. They, they up and left. Hey, we're heading up. And um, Israel, notice it's Israel, not Jacob, said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem. I know that's where you know they're going to be. Somehow, he had come to find out they would be in Shechem. Come, and I will note this because this is a 
this is kind of a a play on words, if you will. What's Israel going to do? He's going to send Joseph unto them. Now, the way that he's phrasing this is almost like, some have called it a command. I don't know in the Hebrew if you can really get a command out of this. I think it's more of a volition on Joseph's part. Hey, I really need this done. Can you do this for me? So I don't see, you know, Dad having to twist Joseph's arm to get this done. Notice Joseph's response. He says, here am I. Whatever you need, Dad. Yeah, I... I can, I can handle this. Now, we surmise Joseph is about 17 years of age around that, that time in life. So he's, he's old enough to be able to handle this kind of journey. Now, think about it. He's going to have to take his bedroll with, with him. He, he, I mean, he's heading out for a journey. It's going to be anywhere from three to five days to get up to where they are. So we're talking about like a week-long trek here on foot that this young man's about to, to do on his own. And he's going to strike out. Dad's going to let him. Because he's really wondering what's going on. He's desirous to know what's happening with the other brothers and the flocks. And he said unto him, Go, I pray thee. Not I command thee, but I pray thee. Go, I pray thee. See whether it be well with thy brethren. Now, I think this is is not unfounded. Okay, We see uh, Jacob's concern. Does he have any reason to be concerned about them being up in Shechem without anybody there but them? Now, they're grown men. They can take care of themselves. But remember what happened at Shechem and what Jacob was afraid of after they did their nasty deed there. And they made him his name to stink in the nostrils of all the people of the land. He was afraid that everybody in that territory then, maybe this is why they're down in Hebron, to get out of there, because of the heat. And they're going right back up into it. I don't know about you, but if you were dad, wouldn't you be a little concerned? Did they fall among you know, some tribes that are going to take vengeance for what happened at Shechem? Are they okay? So I think he has a real concern. Do you see Jacob's desire? He's concerned about the welfare of his children. But I think there's a little confusion going on here too. Not only his concern, but note his confusion. He and Joseph, neither one of them up to this point, I don't think they have a clue as to how the hatred and envy is about to manifest itself in the heart of these brothers. And so almost with naivety, Joseph is going to strike out, yep, I'll go, Dad. Dad doesn't think twice about it. Hey, everything's going to be fine, right? They are miles and miles and miles, 50 plus miles away, just to get from Hebron up to Shechem. And then another, uh, how many ever miles it is from there, maybe 12 miles or whatever it is, on foot up to Dothan above that. Another day's journey for sure up to Dothan because they're nowhere in Shechem. It's an easy place, easy place for them to do whatever they want and nobody's going to know. And in this day and time, the way the culture was, you could really roam around as you know they're doing with their sheep and their, their flocks. You can just roam from place to place and probably you know, go days, weeks without running into anybody. And here they're in Dothan, and there's probably nobody there but them and some empty you know, cisterns. Maybe they're up there looking for water, and they find none, so they're already perturbed about that by the time Joseph comes over the ridge. Anyway, 
I think Jacob's got not only a legitimate concern about them being up there, I think he's a little confused as to how the hatred is going to manifest itself in their heart. So Jacob's desire is clearly seen. Notice Joseph's devotion. I would submit to you that it's prompt and it's persistent. Joseph is going to be faithful to do what Dad says. He says, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren, verse 14, and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. Joseph, I, I just got to know. So he sent, again, the word sent, him out of the vale, the vale of Hebron, and he, Joseph, came to Shechem. So get this, he makes the few-day journey up to Shechem, stopping where he needs to to rest. And, but he's going to make a lot faster ground than the brothers did, mind you, because he doesn't have any flocks with him. He can just tear out and, and make good ground. He gets up there, and they're nowhere to be found. And I don't know. I can just picture Joseph. You know, maybe one of those. Maybe you've seen a young, a young adult like this in their life. You know, they get somewhere and it's just they really have a heart to do what's right, but they're just kind of they got that lost look on them. You know, maybe you've been there. Maybe you've seen somebody like that. Oh, I've seen them in Home Depot. <laughs> People come in all the time. You know, when I was working at Home Depot, and and uh, we were taught. You know, so hey, by the way, if you ever go to Home Depot and ask somebody where something is. And they just tell you or point, you need to turn them into the supervisor because it's not allowed to do that. Uh, that's that's one thing we were taught at Home Depot. If somebody asks you where something is, you walk them over to it. Unless they adamantly decline, you walk them over to where it is and make sure that it's in their hand before you know you, you turn them loose. So I've seen people, you know, with a starry-eyed look. I don't know where this. They're going up this aisle. They're going down this aisle. And, and all over the place. Okay, Joseph's in Shechem. He said, I don't know where they are. He's looking everywhere. And then you got your Home Depot associate that's just there in Shechem. And I'm just kidding. I'm sure he's not. Maybe he's wearing an orange apron. I doubt it. But a certain man found him. Can we connect the providential dot here? What's this guy doing there? He's a certain man. He's got a name. He's not named here. We don't know what his name is. But evidently he sees Joseph Joseph is back over here. Oh, yeah, hey, there's... And he sees him over here. He's back over here. He's, okay, something's going on here. Maybe I need to check on this guy. So a certain man found him. And behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, saying, What are you looking for? Can I help you find something? He obviously looked perplexed. And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. Well, whoever this certain man is, he knows exactly who Joseph's brethren are. They've got a reputation in the area. So I'm looking for them. Now, maybe there was some more conversation, and this is what the Holy Spirit has recorded for us by divine inspiration. They might have you know, exchanged names or something that's not recorded here by Moses. But uh, it, he says, They're departed hence, for I heard him say. He was close enough to actually overhear them talking about what they were going to do, that they were heading up to Dothan. And that's not Alabama, by the way. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. And when they saw him afar off, now we get into trouble. So we see Joseph's devotion. Is he devoted? Boy, he just doesn't stop. Dad gives him a task and he does it until he finds what he's looking for. And he doesn't come back home. Dad... I don't know what happened. I got up to Shechem. I couldn't find him anywhere. He says, I can't go back yet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn over every rock until 
I know where. And then somebody, you know, God sends somebody along, and Joseph gets some help as a young man, and he's just devoted. He uh, he's prompt. As soon as Dad says go, he's out to it. He's persistent. He doesn't stop until he finds what he's looking for. Can I tell you that I see Jesus and Joseph here? When there was a substitute needed, I see my Savior in heaven. The Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Now's the time. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Galatians tells us that, that for this time, Christ came. And it was all at the time of God. He didn't miss he didn't come too early. He didn't come too late. Jesus came right when He was supposed to. And He did not stop. The faithful Son that He was, He never stopped until He found what He was looking for. He came to seek and save that which was lost. Now, tell me, you know, I'm stretching that too far. Well, that's not interpretation. But as a preacher, I can sure make application there, can I? And we have liberty. And, and let the Holy Spirit move us when we look at Joseph to say, I see Jesus. What did Jesus do for me? And Joseph is a picture of devotion. He's a picture of promptness, persistence. Notice, uh, thirdly, the, de- the brother's depravity. The story hastens on and they find him in Dothan. And when they saw him afar off, how was he so recognizable from a distance? <laughs> he stands out, doesn't he? Dear old dad made sure of that. Whether you think it's a long tunic or a coat of many colors, I say coat of many colors. Regardless, he stands out. And the text should stand here. It's something that is noticeable from afar off. And they can see this coat of many colors. Even before he came near unto them, they're already conspiring. So the brothers' depravity, we see their plot as they conspire against him to what? They're out for blood. We've got him right where we want him. This dreamer, king of dreams, master of dreams. Yeah, let's see how these dreams are going to wind up. See who's really in control now. Joseph's out from the purview of dear old dad. Now we can do whatever we want with him. And they're going to have their way. And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Now, the way the language is, this is totally derogatory. I mean, they are completely mocking him. This dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him. Cast him into some pit, and we'll say some evil beast. Note the evil beast idea here. I'm going to tell you why that's important, I think. We're going to kill him. We're going to throw him into a pit, and nobody's ever even going to know any different. We'll just say some beast devoured him. And Dad won't be any of the wiser. We'll see what will become of his dreams. This dreamer coming. We'll see what will become of these dreams. Who's really in control? God's in control. But they think they can wrestle the very will and plan of God. Why do I say that? Because this is not new in the book of Genesis. Do you remember another dad who one time had clear revelation from, from the Lord? through his wife, that uh, we know exactly which one of the twins God had set His favor on. The elder shall serve the younger. And yet, dear old dad wants to wrestle the will of God and say, no, I'm going to favor the older one instead. I don't care what God says. I'm going to bless and I'm going to give everything I can to Esau. Who was that? That was Isaac. 
So here the brothers are just as guilty, are they not? Because God had revealed in Joseph's dreams that Joseph would would one day rise to a place of prominence. Now they can't see the end of the story like we can, but these brothers should have picked up on that. But they've drifted, and their hatred, their envy has driven a wedge between them and the Lord, and their sin that they've harbored in their heart. They can't even hear the still small voice. Sin will do that to you, and you'll drift further away from God. It'll cause you to do that. They put this plot together, and uh, they're going to kill him. They're going to throw him in a pit. One of those cisterns up there. He's going to wind up there, but not quite dead. We see the plot, but we see also Reuben's proposal. Notice what he puts forward. He says, and Reuben heard it. And he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. Reuben said unto them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that's in the wilderness and lay no hand upon him that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. So we're let in on a little bit of the mind of Reuben. Out of all the brothers, why would Reuben be the one to make this move, do you think? Reuben is firstborn. And if the avenger of blood is going to call anybody's feet to the carpet, guess who they're going after first? I think Reuben has every right to stop them in their tracks and say, hold on a minute here. This isn't how this is going to work. You know, I'm, I, I might not be able to stop you from throwing him in the pit, but I sure am not going to let you lay a hand on him to kill him. We're going to shed no blood. Now, Reuben, you know, has it figured out. He's thinking in his mind, okay, I can just get him to put him in the pit where he can't go anywhere, and then I'll go about my business, and then when it's nighttime or whatever, whenever I can get back, I'll sneak him out of the pit when nobody's around, and then I can get him back home safe. Now, I'm reading again into my glorified imagination, but maybe Reuben is wondering, could this set me right with dear old dad again after what happened with me and Bilhah? There's a lot that's playing here with Reuben. And it came to pass, so we see the plot that they had hatched, they, uh, the proposal that Reuben makes here, and, and then we note the purchase price as Joseph is going to be sold now. And it came to pass when Joseph was coming to his brethren, they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. They took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. Note, we need the detail here. There's no water in this pit. Usually there's supposed to be water in these cisterns. We walked through one in Beersheba. And what happens in the rainy season is the water comes and it fills up these cisterns so that in the dry season you have water to pull from when there's no water coming. And you can make it through the dry times. Well, this is a very dry time and there's no water in this cistern. So he's down here. There's nothing in there. There's no water in it. And note their callousness. And they sat down to eat bread. I don't, know about, I don't know about you, but um, I kind of lost my appetite at the we're going to kill him part. And here they make no qualms. And not a few commentators, more than one commentator, drew an inference between this and the Roman soldiers when Christ was crucified. And we read this every year when we do our Scripture reading. You remember those words. Maybe they, maybe they play in your mind like they do mine. And they sat down and watched him there at the foot of the cross as they were crucifying Jesus Christ. They were eating. They were drinking. They were making merry. They were mocking. 
They were making fun of our Savior. Hang on, an innocent man dying. The most gruesome death a person could ever die. Roman crucifixion. And yet, it doesn't even bother them. Here's Joseph. Now, I want to put something together for you. If you, I, I don't, uh, It might be in a center column reference. When the brothers come and are reunited with Joseph, Joseph makes a comment. I think it's around chapter 41 or chapter 42, somewhere around there. He makes a comment about them ignoring his pleas, ignoring the cries that he had cried unto them. So though we're not told about that here in chapter 37, I know, based off Joseph's own testimony, that he was crying for them to have mercy on him. And here he is. Now get this. They've got to be within earshot. They can hear him in the pit crying for mercy, crying for them to stop, to let him go, to not follow through with this. And they sit down and just eat. Think about that the next time. Maybe a Joseph is crying. It doesn't seem to bother you. I'm talking about people who are really in a circumstance. You know if we have churches that operate like this, that there are people in the congregation, brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and there's a Joseph scenario, and someone's in trouble, someone's really, really hit in their life, and another brother or sister in Christ can't hear that cry, and it doesn't even bother them. I mean, they don't even turn, turn an ear to them. They just ignore and continue on gorging themselves when they've got plenty and this other person has lack. How can that be fulfilling the law of Christ? How's that bearing one another's burdens? It's not. And so here's an example right in the Scriptures of brothers who are ignoring one of their own. One of their own that needs help. Now we can glean applications from this. You know, we have benevolence policies here at the church. One of the policies of that benevolence ministry when we gather funds to be able to help people, is church members do take priority. There's biblical precedent for that because we take care of those that are taking care of the ministry of the Lord first. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't help anybody else. It just means we've got to be mindful that we're not saying no to somebody who's faithful to come and serve and we know them personally and they're here involved in the ministry and then we just turn a deaf ear to them and they cry for help and we go and just throw this to somebody else that... Maybe we'll never see him again or, or whatever. Now, can the gospel go forward with that? Yes, but I think you understand. This is practical, you know, practical theology, practical application. Don't turn a deaf ear. We see the plot. We see the proposal by Reuben. We see the purchase price. So now Judah's going to enter the stage. They took him. They cast him in a pit. They sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, <laughs> striking word there, behold, that means you need to stop and pay attention to this because God's doing something here. Why in the world? Just out, right now, at this juncture in human history, they could have been two weeks early, they could have been two weeks late. They could have left, you know, at a different time. But here, they lift up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, What prophet? Now the word prophet here is exactly what, what you're reading. We're talking about loot. We're talking about filthy money. Judah says, Hey, we can get something out of this deal. 
Now, I didn't crunch the math. I'll just take somebody else's word for it. I read a commentator that crunched the, the 20 shekels here and said it equals, uh, I don't know when he was writing this. I'm sure inflation ha- would affect this a little bit. But the number he gave was like 98 bucks today. 98 bucks they sold it. Less than $100. See you, bro. Have fun down in Egypt. We'll never see you again. Oh, God might have different plans. So they, Judah says, we're going to make some profit here. If we kill him, we'll, we won't get that. Just kill him and conceal his blood. So he says, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be on him, for he is our brother and our flesh. At least he has that conviction about him. And his brethren were content. All right, fine. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's good. You know, we can work that out. Sounds good to me. Then there passed by Midianite merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit. Now, don't get confused. They're Ishmaelites. They're Midianites. It's one and the same. Um, you're an American, right? If you live in Colorado and this is your residence, you're a Coloradan, right? So I can call you an American and call you a Coloradan and, and not do you a disservice. They're Ishmaelites. Largely tracing their lineage back to who? Ishmael. They're Midianites. That means the land of Midian is where they hail from. From whence dost thou hail? Midian. Yeah. Remember Gideon? Fought Midian? Moses spent some time in Midian. That's where Jethro was from. Midian. Been up in the north area. They're coming down. And if you look at the terrain, it makes sense how they would pass right where the brothers are, but they're kind of they're almost going to miss them if the brothers don't do something to go catch them. And so the Ishmaelites just happen to be coming through here. They make this deal to sell him, to sell Joseph. So they they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit. Maybe you want to underline the words lifted up. Remember Jesus said in John 12, and I, if I be Oh, you can't see Jesus in Joseph's. Not a type. Okay. I'm still going to underline that in my Bible. They lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. Now, a full-grown human would go for 30 pieces of silver, which is the price Judas betrayed Jesus for. So Joseph is sold for 20, 20 pieces of silver. And they brought Joseph into Egypt. So we see the purchase price. And then note the panic. Reuben comes back. And he does it. He's beside himself. What in the world is going on? Joseph was supposed to be in the pit. I was supposed to be able to get him out and get him back to dad. Everything was going to be okay. Reuben returned into the pit. And behold, Joseph was not in the pit. And he rent his clothes. It's a sign of great angst and and consternation, sorrow. Jacob's going to rent his clothes too in a little bit. So uh, he rents his his clothes. And he returned unto his brethren and said, The child is not, and whither shall I go? How in the world am I going to go and face Dad when we don't have Joseph? He's gone. Notice, I mean, he's beside himself. Can you understand his remorse? shall I go? You guys just sealed it for me. Maybe you'll be alright, 
But I'm the one that's going to have to answer for this when we get home. Where am I going to go? How am I going to get out of it? You won't, Reuben. Be sure your sin will find you out. Well, they're going to cover it up for a little while, though. So we see his panic. Now notice how they're going to cover everything up. They took Joseph's coat, killed a kid of the goats. I want to say it was J. Vernon McGee who pointed it out about the aspect of the goat, this being a kid of the goats. And um, let's rewind. Let's go back in history a little bit. Remember Rebecca and, and Jacob, they put a little plot together one time to deceive dear old dad. And, you know, it was interesting. A goat played a part in that too, didn't it? They took a kid of the goats and she made that pottage that tasted just like good old Esau's. And the goat was used in the deception of Jacob for Jacob to deceive Isaac. Now it comes home to roost. His own sons are going to do the same thing. They're going to take a goat and they're going to use its blood. And they're going to lie to dear old dad now, except it's not Isaac that gets lied to. It's Jacob now. The very one who deceived before will be deceived now. And the law of the boomerang comes full circle. And he's reaping what he sowed. We see Jacob's despair. Note the word sent again. Jacob sent Joseph. Now the brothers are going to send his coat back to dad. After they dipped it in the blood, they sent the coat of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be... They can't... They can't even say his name. That's how much they hate him still. Your son, Dad. This, is this your son's coat? It's exactly the way it reads in the Hebrew. This is so disrespectful and revelatory of what's really in their heart. They can't even bring themselves to utter his name. Because they just sold him down in slavery, expecting he'll never return from Egypt. They'll never see him again. He probably will die along the way. If not, uh, you know, he'll wind up dispersed in one of the, the, the cities of Egypt down there, never to be heard from again. Oh, but it's the providence of God that he winds up in an officer of Pharaoh's house. Not some obscure little village somewhere. He winds up in a man who's directly under Pharaoh. Captain of the guard. He's, he's over the prison ward, right? Well, Jacob is going to despair. Is this the son's coat? Or no? And he knew it. And said, it is my son's coat. He doesn't even say Joseph's name. Note here again, the play on words. An evil beast hath devoured him. Remember, what was the plot? Oh, we'll just kill him and throw him in a pit and say some evil beast devoured him. Oh, they didn't kill him, but they did throw him in a pit. And the evil beasts that were devouring him sat down and ate while he was crying from the pit. Those were the evil beasts that had their way with Joseph. Oh, yeah, an evil beast hath devoured him. 
This is the conclusion that Jacob arrives at with no help of them. An evil beast. An evil beast. It was Talmadge who preached a sermon off of this phrase alone, condemning alcohol in every form. You ought to read that. It's, it's part of the world's greatest sermon series sometimes. I don't have time to, to go through it here tonight. But an evil beast. And through that sermon, he takes illustration after illustration. And he talks about, let me show you two houses. One where everything looks great, and everything's in order, and, and, and there's peace, and there's happiness in this home. And then let me show you another one where they're trying to sell everything they can just to live, and the, the children are walking around in rags, and, and there's brokenness all in this home. Same home. Same home. Rum destroyed it. The evil beast devours. Boy, that'll preach. Preach it, Talmadge. We need some more preaching like that today because you know how many breweries are popping up all around us? It's only a matter of time before more houses look like the one Talmadge described at the turn of the century. It's coming around. The evil beast will still devour. Well, that's another thing for another time. Jacob's despair. There's no conscience on the part of his brothers. No conscience whatsoever. It doesn't bother them one bit to turn around and lie to their dad like this, but also there's no comfort that can be found for Jacob. No conscience on their part, no comfort for Jacob's despair. Without a doubt, Joseph is rent in pieces. He's torn, and Jacob tears his clothes and puts sackcloth on his loins, mourn for his son many days, many days, many days. All his sons and all his daughters, plural, maybe there's more than one daughter than Dinah, maybe, rose up, maybe it's talking about grandkids by now, I don't know. They all rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. Okay, here's how it falls out. All the gals, you know, all the daughters, all the grandkids maybe, who weren't part of the ploy, who weren't part of the plot, they're all going along with Jacob trying to do everything they can. How easy do you think it is for the brothers to continue to put up with this? They know the truth. Every day, day in and day out, they are living the biggest lie you could ever live because they know. Exactly. Joseph is not dead as of what they know of. Maybe he is, but they didn't kill him. And it sure wasn't an evil beast that they you know, purported to, to bring dad to the conclusion of. And every day they're living with this and watching Joseph, Jacob go through the motions over Joseph. And it's just weighing on them and weighing on them. Dad, you got to stop. Dad, Dad, it's going to be okay. Dad, let's just move on from this. Can't we put this behind us? You know, Everything's going to be okay. No, it's not okay. Dad is broken. And they'd like to just move on. There's no conscience for them. There's no comfort for Dad. They all rose up and noticed, he said, For I will go down into Sheol. Wherever this beast took my son, that's where I'm going. Wherever my son is, I'm going to go find him. Now look at Jacob's mourning and contrast that, if you will, to David's mourning over his son. You know the baby that died? Yeah, that one. While this child was alive, David mourned, Right? and refused to eat, because there was still hope that the child could live. Jacob has absolutely no hope. None. He has no faith in God, or his revelation about the dreams before. All of that, everything, his whole world has crashed. Everything's gone, as far as he's concerned. 
Oh, but God's not finished. But Jacob can't see it because he's in this valley of depression and he won't climb out. Totally different, isn't it? As soon as David got the news that his baby was beyond the grave, he said it's time to move on. He buried his dead out of his sight. He let God write a new chapter in his life as hard as that was. It was never the same after that, was it? No, it wasn't, but David was able to move on and still do something for God. Jacob is going to wallow and and wind up useless until his brothers have to drag him down to Egypt to save his very life in the end. We can learn something about grief here if we'll pay attention. Thus his father wept for him. And then we note, you know, where is God in all this? I wrap this up. You've been kind to me to to walk with me through these 36 verses. No, this is not the end of the story. The Midianites, they sold Joseph. Oh, not just to anybody. They sold him to Potiphar. Pharaoh has an officer named Potiphar. You see, this is the beginning of Joseph's climb out of the pit. A long climb it'll be, but he's going to wind up second in command. I want to give you F.B. Meyer's words in closing because he he just had an eloquent way of, of putting this, if I can find where I wrote it down. As we think and close, you know, we just say, where, where is God in all of this? Do we see Him? You know, is His hand evident? In Through the Bible Day by Day, F.B. Meyer wrote this about the providence that we've already pointed out, but this is how he put it. It was beautiful. It was not chance, but providence that brought these Midianites to the pit at that hour. They had, of course, fixed their time of departure from their native land, the speed at which their camels were to travel, the amount of time which they would spend at the fairs and markets en route, quite irrespectively of all other considerations but their own profit and convenience, yet quite unconsciously, They were moving according to a divine timetable. Everything in life is directed, superintended, and controlled by a divine forethought. Let us live in constant recognition of this. You may be in a pit of dark misery, but God knows that you are there and times the moments. Only continue to trust. Do not be afraid. Blessed are they that believe. To them there shall be a performance. Months ago, a caravan started, which will arrive at the precise hour when intervention will best serve you. David said, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help.